This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. If you hate cops just because they're cops, the next time you get in trouble, call a crackhead. You just watched a snippet from an actual political ad released by incumbent Republican Senator from Louisiana, John Kennedy. And I'm sure that you'll be surprised to know that the extended version of this ad wasn't any more substantive. Take a look. Violent crime is surging in Louisiana. Woke leaders blame the police. I blame the criminals. A mom should not have to look over her shoulder when she's pumping gas. I voted against the early release of violent criminals, and I opposed defunding the police. Look, if you hate cops just because they're cops, the next time you get in trouble, call a crackhead. I'm John Kennedy, and I approve this message. So the takeaway is that defunding the police bad and the wokists who cried defund the police bad, except the one thing that he cites as doing in his capacity as senator is he voted against the early release of violent criminals. Okay, well, you understand why this is a problem, right? Because you're talking about this huge issue in your state, yet you've been the senator there and you've proposed no policy solutions, and you're not talking about policy solutions in this ad. So what is the point of this ad? We'll get to that in a moment. But he's not necessarily wrong to point out the issues that Louisiana has. In fact, the 2021 New York Times article discussed a plethora of reasons as to why Louisiana has consistently had one of the highest murder rates in the nation. And they point to many things, historical factors and inherent lack of trust for the criminal justice system, especially with black voters. And on top of that, they talk about how black people in this state are simultaneously over-policed, but under-policed at the same time. Meaning that when it comes to minor infractions, black people are definitely over-policed and over-incarcerated. But when it comes to the murder rate, well, they're under-policed in the sense that they don't dedicate resources to solve murders in black communities. And it's a number of other things. Racial segregation, uh, poverty. On top of that, a lack of economic opportunity, employment discrimination for black people in Louisiana. And if you're going to claim that being tough on crime is the answer, well, they already have one of the highest rates of incarceration in the country. So simply cracking down on crime, throwing more police at the situation or not defunding them isn't going to help. But Kennedy isn't actually interested in solutions because Republicans like him, every time they're up for re-election, they'll point out the high crime rates, immigration, and they fearmonger, but they don't actually want to solve these problems because then if these weren't issues then how would they galvanize their voters to support them worried about crime are you scared of immigrants well vote for me they don't actually want to solve this problem and on top of that what he said there was racist and this is what his democratic opponent gary chambers called out in a response video now this here is louisiana politics at its best but it's also racist as hell 
and he ain't say nothing about opioid addicts, meth addicts, none of that other stuff because he was trying to talk about a specific subset of people that he doesn't give a damn about serving in Louisiana since he's been elected. We need leaders who have real solutions to the problems in our communities, not cowards like John Kennedy who drop one-liners and do nothing on the job. You're a piece of trash. And he's absolutely correct about that. This was intended to be a racist dog whistle. John Kennedy knows specifically the voters that he's talking to. And for additional context, Laura Bassett of Jezebel explains, crackhead, of course, is a racist pejorative term that rose to popularity during the former president Richard Nixon's war on drugs when black people were arrested twice as often as white people for drug-related offenses. This was due in part to the way the justice system treated crack cocaine use differently from the more expensive powder. So make no mistake about it, Kennedy knows what he's doing here, and he is in this race trying to portray himself as a right-wing populist who is going against the establishment. Now, keep in mind, this is an this is an incumbent senator. So for all intents and purposes, he is the establishment. But the establishment that he claims he's going against is the woke establishment. And since the woke establishment has flocked to Gary Chambers, then, you know, he's really the one who's this outsider who's going against the grain. Now, let's be clear, when he says woke, he's using that as a synonym for black. And he has consistently tried to portray himself as the little guy. For example, back in May, he actually lied about being outraised by Gary Chambers. Also, he can propagate this myth that the woke establishment is out to get him. And also, by trying to spread this claim that he's being out fundraised by Gary Chambers, who had a couple of ads go viral, well, then he can further solidify and add evidence to this claim that the woke establishment has united behind Gary Chambers. Therefore, he's in danger because everyone is out to get him. Therefore, he is the populist in this particular instance but it's obvious that that is comical and gary chambers has pointed out in uh, an earlier ad from this year that every single thing about john kennedy is so fake and manufactured right down to his accent take a look i'm running for the u.s senate and this is my opponent john kennedy he used to be a democrat that talked like this well we have another program here at treasury that we're very proud of but then he became a republican switched accents and now he talks like this i will not let you down i'd rather drink weed killer oh and by the way now he's good buddies with this guy john kennedy inspires people like this and has now raised 15 million dollars to keep ruining louisiana we need to build a grassroots movement to defeat john kennedy and build the margins of the democratic party in the u.s senate chip in today we're a long way from 15 million, but people power can catch up. Let's go to work. Avocado toast eating insiders elite. Yeah, so everything about John Kennedy is fake. It's manufactured. It's synthetic, right? He adopted a fake accent to run as a Republican, and now he's claiming that he's going up against the uh, woke establishment. Now, he's saying these things because he's speaking a language that he knows the voters are going to like in that particular state. He's not trying to run on any substantive issue. He's not talking about fixes. He's just trying to fearmonger about crime and use racist dog whistles to attract 
certain kinds of voters in his state. And the sad thing is that it's probably going to work because this is currently a state that is deeply red and it would take a minor miracle for Gary Chambers to pull off a victory here. But just understand that these are the things that Republicans have to do because they don't have policy solutions. If you look at any type of ad by Democrats, especially progressive Democrats, but even some corporate Democrats, they stay focused on policies. Perhaps those policies aren't very good. Perhaps they're incremental policies that I don't necessarily agree with, but they're policies nonetheless. But when you look at Republican ads, they don't talk about anything but what you should be afraid of. They fearmonger. They claim that they're going against the woke agenda or the woke establishment, and there's no substance there. But they do that because one, they don't have set a substance, and two, because that's what's going to work. So yeah, this is the state of American politics in 2022, where Republicans are running ads that are so stupid, it's almost indistinguishable from parody at this point. On Saturday, Marjorie Taylor Greene was on the stump for GOP gubernatorial candidate from Michigan, Tudor Dixon, along with Donald Trump. And during her speech, she said something so egregious, so reckless, so deeply dangerous that I can't not think that she is literally trying to incite a civil war in the United States. Take a look. We're all targets now, though, for daring to push back against the regime. And it doesn't stop at a weaponized legal system. I'm not going to mince words with you all. Democrats want Republicans dead, and they've already started the killings. An 18-year-old boy was run down by a Democrat driver who confessed to killing the teenager simply because he was a Republican. Even right here in Michigan, just last week, an 83-year-old woman was shot in the back for advocating for the unborn. Joe Biden has declared every freedom-loving American an enemy of the state. But under Republicans, we will take back our country from the communists who have stolen it and want us to disappear. We will expose the unelected bureaucrats, the real enemies within, who have abused their power and declared political warfare on the greatest president this country has ever had. I mean, look. It's Marjorie Taylor Greene, so it's not necessarily surprising to hear her say something so deranged, but at the same time, we can't become accustomed to this kind of political rhetoric because it's deeply dangerous. It's dangerous. Now, before I get to the uh, bulk of what she says here, I've got a nitpick. Republicans have got to stop using words like regime and communist if they have no idea what those words mean. Joe Biden is not a communist. He is a capitalist. You may disagree with some of his policies, but that doesn't mean that he's a communist. Second of all, regime refers to a whole system of governance, not an administration. It's not the Biden regime. It's the Biden administration. Just because you don't like him doesn't mean that it's some sort of a new regime. I hate that they say this. I get why they're doing it, because they're trying to imply that it's a regime because Biden is an authoritarian. But that's not what that word means. So as a politician, maybe you should use these words correctly or perhaps look up what they mean before using them. But either way, let's get to what she actually said and why this is so dangerous. She says that we're all targets now for daring to push back against the regime. She says Democrats want Republicans dead and they've already started the killings. 
Now, why is this so dangerous? First of all, it's not true, obviously. And second of all, this is tacitly communicating to deranged Republicans that they are justified if they want to do violence against Democrats because Democrats want to do violence against them. So it's a sort of self-defense if you do an act of violence or terror against Democrats. That's what she's saying here. And she even has a couple of anecdotes where there, there was, you know, somebody who ran over an 18-year-old boy because he was a Democrat and they confessed to killing him because he was a Democrat. Okay, who would think that that's justified? What Democrat would you find that says, you know what, good for him. I'm glad that that 18-year-old boy was killed for being a Republican. I mean, who would, who would agree with that? She's making it seem as if Democrats are okay with this, when in actuality, no sane person finds this acceptable. But you can find anecdotes on the opposite side of Republicans doing political violence. In fact, there's an abundance of anecdotes of Republicans being dangerous and violent. That doesn't necessarily mean that all Republicans want to kill Democrats. I could point out how Donald Trump, the last sitting president, literally called Black Lives Matter activists thugs, and he said when the looting starts, the shooting starts. I could point out how Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, effectively decriminalized running over protesters. I could point to polls that demonstrate how nearly a third of Republicans think that political violence may be necessary to save the country. I could point to the January 6th insurrection. But what I would not do is make a generalization so broad about all Republicans and suggest that they all want Democrats dead because that is reckless and it's not true. But that doesn't stop Marjorie Taylor Greene from using this bombastic rhetoric. And if you'll notice over the years, her rhetoric has gotten a lot more bombastic and explosive. She started off by just saying dumb things and her rhetoric has gotten more insidious lately, more dark, more dangerous. And she is going to get people riled up to the point where this will lead to violence. But that's the goal, because perhaps she's one of the nearly one third of Republicans who think that political violence is necessary to save the country. And again, this is a sitting member of Congress who has become the face of the Republican Party, trying to convince people that Democrats want Republicans dead. If you can't fathom the ways that Republicans are going to use this to galvanize them to do something dangerous, I don't know what to say, but at this point in time, even if I do believe that Marjorie Taylor Greene is dim-witted, I think that she knows what she's doing. She knows that what she's doing here is going to rile up Republicans to do violence against Democrats who they believe want them dead. So this is her trying to incite a civil war, move us closer to that. Or perhaps maybe it's not that deep. Maybe she doesn't want to incite a civil war. Perhaps she's just using this to galvanize people to come to the polls. Either way, it's deeply dangerous. And if Republican leadership actually cared about the future of this country and the health of our democracy, they would stop letting members say things like this. They would reprimand them or repudiate them publicly whenever they say things like this because it's not okay. We've seen a plethora of celebrities and online influencers shill for crypto companies. And finally, one of them is being held accountable. Are they only being held minimally accountable? Yes. Will this dissuade them from doing this in the future? Not necessarily, but this still is pleasantly surprising to see. Who am I talking about? Well, of course, reality television show star Kim Kardashian. As CNN explains, Kim Kardashian agreed to pay a $1.26 million fine to the Securities and Exchange Commission to settle civil charges after the reality TV star touted a crypto asset, Ethereum Max, on Instagram. The SEC charged Kardashian with failure to disclose that she was paid 
paid $250,000 to publish her Instagram post. In addition to paying the fine, she agreed to cooperate with the SEC's ongoing investigation. This case is a reminder that when celebrities or influencers endorse investment opportunities, including crypto asset securities, it doesn't mean that those investment products are right for all investors, said SEC Chair Gary Gensler. Quote, we encourage investors to consider an investment's potential risks and opportunities in light of their own financial goals. Kardashian also agreed to not promote any crypto securities for three years. Ms. Kardashian is pleased to have resolved this matter with the SEC, said a statement from her attorneys. And I'm sure that she is. Now, in addition to the $1.26 million fine, she also has to forego the $250,000 that she made from Ethereum Max. So is this embarrassing? Yes. Is it costly? Absolutely. But is this a sufficient punishment to dissuade her and other celebrities and influencers from doing the same thing? And the answer is an unequivocal no, because as John Iderella points out, this is only 0.07% of her net worth. In other words, if this is lucrative for her, she's going to continue to do that and just pay the fines. Because if you're making more money shilling for crypto, then you have to pay out in fines. Then it's just the simple cost benefit analysis. And it's good to see someone finally be held accountable because we've been seeing influencers do terrible things. I mean, Logan Paul, for example, participated in various pump and dumps where he'll hype up a new cryptocurrency and then sell it once his audience buys in. It's incredibly disgusting and it's them exploiting their loyal audiences. And it has to stop, but it's not stopping. And even when people like Kim Kardashian know that they need to disclose when they're participating in an, in an ad campaign, they still don't do it. Why? Because it's uh, lucrative. This isn't the first time that Kim Kardashian, by the way, has been busted for not disclosing that her posts are ads. And I just, I don't understand that because you already make so much money. I get that shilling for crypto is lucrative, but you make so much money through other avenues. Do you really want to rip off your audience to make a couple of extra bucks, comparatively speaking? I mean, for me, I don't do ads on this show. I haven't done an ad since like 2017, and that was for a small coffee company based out of Seattle. But I am really hesitant about accepting ads, even if I don't necessarily think that ads are inherently wrong, but I don't want to bug my viewers with more ads when they're already going to see the pre-roll ads from youtube i just think that it's unnecessary and if i don't need to do it to survive i'm not gonna do it unless i'm very desperate but these celebrities they're shameless they don't care they already have millions if not billions of dollars and they're still trying to get every penny that they can from their supporters through these influencers from their supporters who trust them and i don't know how people like kim kardashian are able to sleep at night knowing that they're fucking over people who believe in them who rely on them who actually believe what they're saying but yet they use their clout to pump up these crypto scams and it's just genuinely disgusting and the level of shilling that we've seen for cryptocurrency and nfts by the likes of you know uh what's his name matt damon paris hilton jimmy fallon these are all so wealthy people like all of them they're so rich and they won't stop now i've got to point to the a video put out by gary gensler this is the chair of the sec now they cited a couple of quotes from him in the article that we just read but the video that he put out it's so elementary that it could be a Sesame Street segment explaining to children why you shouldn't take the financial advice of these influencers. But yet, 
it's so bad and so like obvious and common sense that I have to show this to you just so you know what we have to deal with in the United States. Celebrities and influencers often are endorsing a variety of products and services across television ads, social media, or print on everything from clothing, diet plans, to perfumes. It catches our attention. We always wondered, did they use the product? Do they like the product? How much were they paid to endorse it? In any case, what does this have to do with the Securities and Exchange Commission? Sometimes celebrities endorse investment opportunities, like crypto tokens or special purpose acquisition companies. Celebrity endorsements, though, don't mean that an investment product is right for you, or even, frankly, that it's legitimate. Even if a celebrity endorsement is genuine, each investment has its own risk and opportunities and may not fit your investment needs. Furthermore, a celebrity or influencer's incentives aren't necessarily aligned with yours. We might enjoy watching a celebrity playing on a basketball court, starring in a reality TV show or a movie, or performing to a large crowd at a stadium show. We shouldn't confuse those skills, though, with the very different skills needed to offer appropriate investment advice. So, before investing, please do your research. Consider the investment's potential risk and benefits in light of your own financial goals. Search a company's finances, organization, and business prospects through the Securities and Exchange Commission's database called EDGAR. And when it comes to crypto, remember, many of these are highly speculative assets. You may be wondering if it's right for you or even if it might be a scam. If you have questions about investing, check out our resources at investor.gov. Yeah, so you have to do this thanks to simp culture. Because of simps, while they refuse to believe that the people that they've deified on social media would ever do anything wrong, would ever mislead them or lie to them, Therefore, you know, you have to put out basic statements like this, that mm, maybe there's some ulterior motives. Maybe their agenda doesn't necessarily align with your agenda. Your agenda is to make money on this particular investment. Their agenda is to just pump it and get that sponsor sponsorship money. The fact that you have to release videos like this, it shows you how compelled people are to follow the advice, the financial advice of celebrities, and that's so dangerous. But yet, even if it seems common sense to people like you, most people, they don't think about it. They just think, okay, well, Kim Kardashian, I guess I trust her, so she would never mislead me, when actually she is getting money to mislead you. And the thing is that, what makes this especially nefarious is that with that particular Instagram post, Kim Kardashian wasn't saying that this was an ad. So there's this implication that she's promoting this on her own volition because it's that good of a cryptocurrency that you should buy into when she was getting paid to do that. And to not disclose that makes it particularly gross. So either way, I'm happy that she's being held accountable, even if it's just a slap on the wrist. But it's not a big enough punishment to dissuade celebrities and influencers from doing things like this and as a result it's going to continue unless you hit them with harsh and strict penalties i do think that stopping her from advertising or promoting crypto securities for three years is big but at the end of the day the financial penalty is really going to be 
what stops them from doing this. And unless you take lots of money from them for, prom for prom uh, promoting these scams, they're just not gonna stop. I think that's obvious. A couple of weeks ago on the program, we talked about how Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib was being attacked by her own Democratic Party colleagues for daring to say, one, that Israel is an apartheid state, and two, that if you're a progressive, it is not acceptable for you to support or condone this system of apartheid and abuse. Now, there were a lot of individuals who weighed in. One of them was CNN's Jake Tapper, who also condemned what she had to say. And a lot of people on the left talked about this. David Dole talked about this. And also, Katie Halper talked about this as well. And for those of you who don't know, Katie Halper has been a co-host on The Hills Rising. And I want to share the segment that she created in response to this entire story. This is just a snippet, but it's a really important part of what she had to say. Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan facing criticism today from what several of her Jewish colleagues have deemed anti-Semitic comments. Here's what Tlaib, the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress, said at a virtual event yesterday. I want you all to know that among progressives, it has become clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values, yet back Israel's apartheid government, and we will continue to push back and not accept this idea that you are progressive, progressive, except for Philistine, any longer. The CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, slammed the comments, saying that Israel does not have an apartheid government and said that she should not be imposing a, quote, litmus test in a tweet, saying, quote, Tlaib tells American Jews that they need to pass an anti-Zionist litmus test to participate in progressive space. Some of Tlaib's Jewish colleagues in Congress agreed. Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz called her comments, quote, outrageous and, quote, nothing short of anti-Semitic. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is right. It is outrageous. It's outrageous that Rashida Tlaib is getting attacked. Tlaib is merely stating that Israel is an apartheid state and that people who claim to have progressive values cannot support an apartheid state. No matter how loose a definition of progressive we use, it certainly excludes supporting a racist apartheid system. What's outrageous is attacking Tlaib for pointing out that progressive except for Palestine is an intrinsically contradictory position. What's also outrageous is that the Anti-Defamation League's Jonathan Greenblatt would claim that Israel is not an apartheid government. What's outrageous is that Jake Tapper would accept Greenblatt's judgment as the truth and not propaganda that needed to be pushed back against. I understand that Greenblatt and perhaps Tapper feel like Israel is not an apartheid state, but unfortunately for them, apartheid isn't about your feelings. It's about facts. In 1973, the UN defined the crime of apartheid as any inhuman acts committed for the purpose of establishing and maintaining domination by one racial group of persons over any other racial group of persons and systematically oppressing them. In 1998, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court defined apartheid as inhumane acts of a character that are committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. These inhuman acts include, among others, infliction upon the members of a racial group or groups of serious bodily or mental harm by the infringement of their freedom or dignity or by subjecting them to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, by arbitrary arrest and illegal imprisonment of the members of a racial group or groups, any legislative measures and other measures calculated to prevent a racial group or groups from participation in the political, social, economic, and cultural life of the country, and the deliberate creation of conditions preventing the full development of such a group or groups, 
in particular by denying to members of a racial group or groups basic human rights and freedoms, including the right to leave and to return to their country, the right to a nationality, the right to freedom of movement and residence, the right to freedom of opinion and expression, and the right to freedom of peaceful assembly and association. I'd encourage Jake Tapper to look this up sometime. Now she goes on to bring in specific examples as to why this is a system of apartheid and abuse. She brings in facts. However, at the Hill, they didn't like that. And what happened was they decided to not only censor the segment, not run it after she filmed it with them, but they fired her because of this. They fired her. Now, first of all, I, I've just got to point out the obligatory, where's all of the free speech warriors? We hear a lot of right-wingers talk about how the left doesn't value free speech, but here you see a leftist that was censored, and I don't hear Dave Rubin speaking out. I don't hear Charlie Kirk speaking out. It's interesting how they have nothing to say when you actually see a media organization censor somebody for saying what they don't want her to say. It's ridiculous. And she wrote via Twitter, it shouldn't matter that I'm Jewish, but I am. At least I'm just called a self-loathing Jew, which is slightly less damaging than being called an anti-Semite. If you're a non-Jewish Arab slash Arab American or Muslim, you're especially smeared as an anti-Semite. And because of this powerful smear, many people are getting censored. Kitty Halper is just a bigger example. But remember, Mark Lamont Hill was also fired from CNN for daring to criticize Israel. There are a number of people who are being asked to sign loyalty pledges to Israel if they want government contracts. Or there are other individuals like Abby Martin who are being punished if they refuse to sign loyalty pledges to Israel, these anti-BDS pledges. And this is just another example of the media trying to use that smear tactic to silence dissenting voices. Now, Ryan Grimm had some additional context because he also is a co-host at The Hill, and he explains how bizarre this really was. In an article for The Intercept, he wrote, each show includes two radars, one from a left perspective and one from a right perspective. And as a former co-host of the show, I've recorded more than 150 of them. There is no approval process. A co-host files a script, which is loaded into a teleprompter. The monologue is then recorded with a back and forth discussion and debate with the other co-host following it. The segment is then uploaded to a variety of platforms along with the rest of the show. But Halper, who spoke publicly about the censorship Thursday evening on her live stream, said that Monday's process was different. After the taping of the segment, producers asked co-host Robbie Sove to do what's known as a pickup, a fairly standard editorial addition to a segment. In this case, Sove was asked to repeat something that had already been included, namely the perspective of the Anti-Defamation League CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt, that stood in opposition to Tlaib. Later, Halper was told the segment was being reviewed and held up. Later in the week, she was told it wouldn't run. When she asked if she could discuss the subject in her next appearance on Hill TV, she was told her invitation had been rescinded, according to an email from an executive with the Next Star Media Group, which owns Hill TV along with scores of local news channels and the cable news channel News Nation, which recently hired former CNN presenter Chris Cuomo. The decision of whether to post the segment was kicked from rising producers to The Hill's editor-in-chief, Bob Cusack. In a call with Halper on Wednesday, he framed Halper's segment as similar to an op-ed submission, telling her that The Hill accepts some submissions and rejects other submissions, and that this right extends to Hill TV journalism as well except she was later fired do you all fire people if you also reject their op-ed submission too or is this just something that you did to katie halper because you don't like what she had to say specifically listen the hill is trash 
this is not a network that the left should be supporting. This is corporate media. And I say this as someone who was actually a guest on The Hill Rising back when Crystal Ball was still co-hosting this with Sagar and Jetty. She invited me on the program. I was on the show and it was lovely. They often give uh, their hosts a lot of editorial discretion, but when they cross certain limits, we're learning what they're willing to do, not just censor them, but fire them as well. Now, I'm going to link you to Katie Halper's full segment down below because I think that what she says here is really important. And most importantly, it's factual. What she's saying is factual. But we're in this state where the tide is starting to turn with regard to Israeli apartheid and more and more people are speaking up for the first time ever. Members of Congress are condemning Israel for the apartheid government that it is. And because of that, well, people who defend Israel no matter what and condone apartheid, they're terrified. So they're working overtime to try to censor voices who speak out on behalf of Palestine. And because of this, I only expect the censorship to get worse. But either way, this is not okay. And, you know, if you care about free speech, you should stand in solidarity with Katie Halper here because this is not acceptable. Everything that she said was not conjecture. It was not based on her opinion. It was based on facts. So even if she was editorializing, she was presenting people with objective information and details about the human rights abuses from the Israeli government. If you can't criticize a government without being anti-Semitic, then you can't, can't criticize any government. You can't criticize Saudi Arabia for their human rights abuses without being Islamophobic. You can't criticize African governments for human rights abuses without being racist. You can't criticize the American government without being an American hater. This is not a standard that I wanna set. Comedian Billy Eichner has a new film out called Bros, and even though it's sitting at 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, apparently the film didn't do too hot at the box office. As Candace Ortiz of Mediaite explains, Bros, written and starring Eichner, was the first gay rom-com ever produced by a major studio. It follows the story of a podcast host, Bobby, portrayed by Eichner, falling in love with a lawyer, Aaron, played by Luke McFarlane. But this weekend, it flopped at the box office with a $4.8 million debut. Now, needless to say, he's pretty upset about his film flopping, and he has some thoughts, dare I say, hot takes, about why the film flopped. Now, first and foremost, let me just point out that that synopsis sounds terrible. Um, I have no interest in immediately watching a film about, I'm assuming, this cynical podcast host who never thinks that he's going to find love, finding love. I don't know. That sounds bad to me. I'm not a fan of love stories or rom-coms, so I guess that I'm part of the problem here. Um, but, you know, to be fair, looking at trailers, it looks fine. I, I think it looks pretty funny based on things that I've seen and heard. Uh, but he's really upset, and he's blaming the straights for this movie's failure. He tweeted out, Rolling Stone already has bros on the list of the best comedies of the 21st century. What's also true is that at one point, a theater chain called Universal said they were pulling the trailer because of the gay content. Uni convinced them not to. That's just the world we live in, unfortunately. Even with glowing reviews, great Rotten Tomato scores, and a cinema score, straight people, especially in certain parts of the country, just didn't show up for bros. And that's disappointing, but it is what it is. Everyone who isn't a homophobic weirdo should go see bros tonight. You will have a blast, and it is special and uniquely powerful to see this particular story on a big screen, especially for queer folks who don't get this opportunity often. I love this movie so much. Go bros. So so he's heavily implying that straight people essentially let him down, let the movie down. And if you're not homophobic, there's no reason why you shouldn't rush out to go see this movie. 
mm, not buying it. Sorry, I'm not buying it. First of all, I have a really huge level of distrust for all comedians because to me, they all seem like really sensitive, fragile, egotistical maniacs. I mean, it's not just Billy Eichner, but he's part of the problem too. When they get criticism for one of their comedy specials, when they make the same jokes, the trans attack helicopter one comes to mind and they constantly go after woke and political correctness and they don't have any refreshing content and then they blame the audiences. Like that irritates me to no end. And it just leads me to believe that they should maybe come up with better content. And so this is Billy Eichner here kind of doing the same thing, albeit to a lesser extent to be fair to him. Uh, but first of all, there's a number of things working against this movie. You released it in October. This is when people want to watch scary movies. I, for one, really like watching scary movies in October. Um, second of all, it's a love story. I do not like love stories, gay or straight. So I'm not going to see this in theaters. I'll watch it when it's on Netflix or maybe I'll even rent it. But I'm not going to watch a love story in theaters because that genre isn't my cup of tea. Another problem is that, believe it or not, the COVID-19 pandemic is still not over. So there are thousands, dare I say millions of Americans who still don't want to see movies in theaters. And it's just not my preferred way of watching. If Billy Eichner were a true gay, he'd know that gays want to cuddle up with their dogs on their couches to watch movies. But look, I have a real issue with him implying that straight people are somehow bad allies if they don't see his movie. I don't like him saying that because it's not true. And I think that watching a movie is not inherently a political act. I get what he's trying to say. Like he's made this point before about how you should see this movie to tell the movie studio that you want more gay movies and there's money behind it. I understand that. I think that representation does indeed matter a lot. But at the same time, to try to portray the film as something that you need to see in order to boost gay cinema rather than trying to tout the film primarily on its merits of just being funny in and of itself um i think that's more important now maybe he's doing that but i don't i don't like this trying to ascribe more value to the movie specifically because it's gay it seems kind of insidious and a little bit cynical to me and i just it leaves a bad taste in my mouth now it also reminds me of ridley scott when he released a movie the last duel last year and it didn't do very well it also flopped and he rather than looking within chose to blame millennials remember he said this quote i think what it boils down to what we've got today are the audiences who were brought up on these fucking cell phones the millennium do not ever want to be taught anything unless you are told it on the cell phone scott continued this is a broad stroke but i think we're dealing with it right now with facebook there is a misdirection that has happened where it's given the wrong kind of confidence to this latest generation i think now, for me, as a millennial, I saw that article about him bad-mouthing millennials before I even saw a single trailer of the movie. So maybe you're just not marketing it to areas on the internet where millennials are visiting. I mean, do you really see that much millennials on Facebook these days? I mean, sure, they're there, but is it the best place to market because he brings up Facebook here? And the same thing is true with, you know, bros. I don't necessarily know if marketing failed. Perhaps the studio didn't put as much money behind it. And I'm not saying that homophobia didn't play a role. It's going to play a role in every single movie 
that features predominantly gay characters, of course. But other movies have been successful despite them being gay. Moonlight is an example, and also the biggest example pointed out by Nando on Twitter here is Brokeback Mountain, which made $178 million at the box office in 2005. Now, in response to Nando, people were saying, yeah, but those were two A-list celebrities, and they were also straight, so maybe audiences feel better about seeing homosexuality if it comes from straight guys. Listen, I don't think that people are really thinking about it that deeply. I don't think that most people are overanalyzing movies like this. If you're a homophobe, you're not going to see this movie. If you don't feel like you're in the mood to watch a rom-com, that doesn't inherently make you a bad ally to the LGBTQ plus community. I think it's cool that this movie has a mostly LGBTQ plus cast. I think that that's great. I like that there's more representation. I like that we've come far enough to where we can have a major release of a gay rom-com. But with that being said, though, I don't think that homophobia is the only factor here, and I don't think it is appropriate to blame straight people for letting you down, considering the many gay people who didn't see it, myself included, because sorry, not going to go to a movie theater to see a rom-com when that's not really my favorite genre. But again, maybe the movie's really good. Is it worth seeing it in theaters? Perhaps, but I'll certainly watch it when it's streaming. But Billy Eichner, honestly, speaking about the movie this way, you know, trying to cope this hard, it kind of makes me a little bit more cynical about the movie itself. Because, again, this is what you have to do if you really want to sell the movie based on how funny it is. You sell it for being funny, right? I get that you're angry, but don't try to make it like, oh, stray people, you better get your fucking asses out, otherwise you hate gay people. If you're not homophobic, well, why haven't you seen this movie? Perhaps you're not as good of an ally as you said you were. I don't like that. I really don't like that at all. It's like me saying, okay, well, you know what? Out of all the leftists in independent media, I get less views. It must be because of homophobia. Mm, no, it's probably not that. Maybe I just need to produce better content. Maybe other people want to hear what other political, political commentators say. I, I think that there are other factors, and not every single thing has to be reduced down to homophobia. Again, I get that homophobia will play a role because this is a movie about a gay love story, but for him to go that hard and claim that straights have let the gays down, total nonsense, total bullshit. Either way, I'll check out the movie when it's streaming. Maybe I'll rent it when it's cheap. But don't try to make this a bigger thing than it is. Just, just chill. So within the last 24 hours or so, Herschel Walker's Senate campaign has essentially imploded. And it is really not looking good for him at this moment. His own son, Christian Walker, actually took to Twitter to call him out. So before I get to that, I want to give you a little bit of additional context as to what triggered Christian Walker's response here to condemn his own father's lies. So it all started with a story published by the Daily Beast, where Herschel Walker reportedly paid for an abortion in 2009 of his girlfriend at the time. And not only does she have the receipt to prove it, she has the $700 check with his name on it, along with a get well card that he gave her that included his signature. Now, the reason why this is so bad is because Herschel Walker is supposedly pro-life. And when I say he's 
pro-life. I mean, he's a forced birther to the highest extent. Not only does he believe that there should be a total ban on abortions, he doesn't even support abortions in the cases of rape and incest. So he is as extreme as you could possibly be on this particular issue. So this story obviously demonstrates how hypocritical he is. But he denied these allegations, taking to Twitter to say it's a flat lie, a hatchet job, and he's also stating that he plans to sue the Daily Beast for defamation. Now, he later appeared on Fox News with Sean Hannity, and Hannity surprisingly asked him about this particular story. And as you're going to see, Walker again denied the reality of this story. You sent a $700 check and that you sent it in a get well card. The get well card, it looks like it's included with your signature on in the article. Have you seen it? And is that your signature? Uh, I haven't seen it, uh, but, you know, I can tell you, uh, I send out so many get well, uh, send out so much of anything. But I can tell you right now, I never asked anyone to get an abortion. I never paid for an abortion. And it's a lie. And I'm going to continue to fight. You know, I tell you, that's what they want. They want this seat. But right now, they've energized me even more. And they're not going to take the seat. So they better work it even harder because they've jeopardized my kids. They've jeopardized my family. They think they can threaten me. They think they can scare me. Right now, all that done is it's energized me more. Yeah, so he's not going to fess up even if his ex-girlfriend has the receipts. This is very incriminating. So it's obvious that he's lying here. And it's also obvious to his son, Christian Walker, because that lie from Herschel Walker right there about the abortion story, that apparently was the straw that broke the camel's back because Christian Walker, his son, decided to expose the plethora of lies that Herschel Walker has told during the course of his campaign. Walker writes, every family member of Herschel Walker asked him not to run for office because we all knew some of his past, every single one. He decided to give us the middle finger and air out all of his dirty laundry in public while simultaneously lying about it. I'm done. Afterwards, he followed up by saying, I know my mom and I would really appreciate if my father, Herschel Walker, stopped lying and making a mockery of us. You're not a family man when you left us to bang a bunch of women, threatened to kill us, and had us move over six times in six months, running from your violence. I don't care about someone who has a bad past and takes accountability, but how dare you lie and act as though you're some moral Christian upright man. You've lived a life of destroying other people's lives. How dare you? Now, for those of you who don't know, Christian Walker's mother is Cindy Grossman, the woman who alleges that her Herschel Walker threatened to kill her and also choked her. So he has a lot of reasons to be angry. So seeing his father parade around as some sort of a moral authority, that's a little bit too much for him. And he kept his mouth shut up until this point. Now, Herschel Walker responded on Twitter saying, I love my son no matter what. Now, before deleting this, Christian Walker replied saying, you have four kids that we know of and you weren't in the house raising one of them. You were out cheating and lying. If you loved your kids, you'd be raising them instead of running for a Senate race to boost your ego. Ouch. So needless to say, this is bad for Herschel Walker. Now, this wasn't necessarily always the stance that Christian Walker wanted to take. He's going to explain why he decided to turn on his father and call him out publicly. But last year in December, actually, Christian Walker was tweeting out support for his father's campaign, saying that he got to hug a future senator and how it was an honor to introduce him at Mar-a-Lago. But in this video that he posted via Twitter, he's going to explain why this latest lie was just too far. I stayed silent as the atrocities committed against my mom were downplayed. I stayed silent when it came out that my father, Herschel Walker, had all these random kids across the country, none of whom he raised. And you know my favorite issue to talk about is father absence. Surprise, because it affected me. 
That's why I talk about it all the time, because it affected me. Family values, people, he has four kids, four different women, wasn't in the house raising one of them. He was out having sex with other women. Do you care about family values? I have a silent lie after lie after lie. The abortion card drops yesterday. It's literally his handwriting in the card. They say they have receipts, whatever. He gets on Twitter, he lies about it. Okay, I'm done. Done. Everything has been a lie. And so for the right to say, I'm being suspicious for saying, hey, I'm, I'm done with the lies. When you all have been calling me saying, is this true about your dad? Gosh, we're not gonna win Georgia, this candidate. That's been you. You have no idea what I've been through in my life. You have no idea what me and my mom have survived. We could have ended this on day one. We haven't. I haven't told any stories. I'm just saying, don't lie. Don't lie on my mom. Don't lie on me. Don't lie on the lives you've destroyed and act like you're some moral family man. Y'all should care about that, conservatives. And then for people on the left to act as though I'm responsible for all of the things that he has done. I've talked about father, I've, I've talked all these issues because they've been close to me. Because they matter to me, because I went through it. That's why I've talked about it. So when you say, well, talk about your dad, but I am. I'm saying this behavior is atrocious. Don't come for me. You don't have to like my father. You don't have to like me. You don't have to. I'm just saying I'm done with the lies. We were told at the beginning of this, he was going to get ahead of his past, hold himself accountable, all of these different things. And that would have been fine. Go ahead. He didn't do any of that. Everything's been a lie. Everything's been downplayed. Everything's been cutting corners. The whole thing. And who, who is, whose expense is that at? Me, my mom, as we're chased down by the media, uh, we're, we're terrorized, all these different things. Uh, uh, people are questioning my authenticity. I'm done. Don't lie. Don't put this on me. You, this is a candidate issue, not a me issue. I wouldn't have spoken out if there weren't all these lies every day. So needless to say, this is really bad for Herschel Walker, and I'm assuming that his campaign is currently scrambling to try to find some way to get past this, right? But Christian Walker is the son of Herschel Walker. His mother was put through hell by Herschel Walker, so he knows Herschel better than anyone else. So he has no reason to lie about his father. So I absolutely believe Christian Walker over Herschel Walker here. I don't think he has a reason to lie about this. I think that it's true that he kind of has seen the lies and it's been building up and he's kept his mouth shut, but up until a point, the dam kind of just bursts open and you can't take it anymore and you've got to respond and rebut some of these lies, especially if his mother is being dragged through the mud as well. Now, you'll be shocked to learn that Republicans are actually defending Herschel Walker over Christian Walker. In fact, as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports, one Republican official close to Walker was already shifting responsibility for the candidate's potential downfall, saying Christian Walker is solely to blame if Herschel loses the race. Now, in addition, Newsmax propagandist Greg Kelly slammed Christian Walker on Twitter, saying, never betray your family. Christian Walker has disgraced himself. You will find that this ugly smear in October, aka October surprise, will not work. Herschel Walker is going to the U.S. Senate. Christian Walker responded saying he betrayed the family when he destroyed four children's lives, then lied about it all and lied again yesterday. How dare you? And I've just got to say, this is peak partisan hackery to have Republican propagandists not believe the son of a politician who has no reason to lie, nothing to gain from this and everything to lose from this. It goes to show you 
how rotten the brains of these Republican propagandists are. Now, Christian Walker released another video specifically responding to Republicans, and he kind of reiterates what he said again before, but nonetheless, let's listen to what he has to say. And just two more things I have to address, and then I'm done with this buffoonery nutjob land. This is atrocious. People on the right are pulling up that I did a campaign event with my dad last year. They're saying, well, you supported them all last year and all this year. You look suspicious. No, no, no. You all have been calling me saying, why aren't you on the campaign trail with your dad? Why aren't you helping him out? This looks weird. You should go help him. And I've said to you calmly, I'm not getting involved. You don't know my family life. I did one event last year when we were told he was going to get ahead of his past and hold himself accountable. None of that happened. Everything's been a lie. So... For me to tell you I'm not getting involved, and then you also be flooding my DMs and calling me saying, I didn't know all this about your dad. We're going to lose the Senate race. And then when I simply say, I'm done with the lies, you go, well, Christian looks suspicious. Excuse me? I haven't told one story about what I experienced with him. I'm just simply saying, don't lie. And then for, for certain political pundits to be pulling up old pictures I posted of my dad, thinking they can police and, and determine what my relationship with my dad was. If you want to pull stuff up, I'll pull stuff up. Don't try me. Don't test my authenticity. All of this has been a lie and you've known it. You've known. So don't you dare. And then to the left who says, well, he did all this to your mom and you were still with him. And you know, that's weird. You know nothing about my life. My parents went through a dirty divorce. I went through a lot as a child. And, and you don't know anything. You don't know the ebbs and flows of our relationship. Nobody knows anything. So for everyone making these wild theories and whatever, that, that, that's crazy. This is about a bunch of lies. Again, I could, if I had an issue with whatever, I could have ended this day. Well, that's not my intention. My intention is don't lie about your life at the expense of me, my mom, and all of the people that you've affected throughout your life. You don't get to pretend you're some moral family guy. You don't get to pretend all these things. Talk policy, talk normal, do not lie. Yeah. So I think that he's right to feel frustrated. And one thing that I'll point out that rubbed me the wrong way is how in both of these videos that we just watched, he tried to shoehorn in some sort of a critique of the left that they're supposedly lobbing at him. I haven't heard a single leftist critique Christian Walker in this instance. I don't know who is blaming you for still associating with your father, but you aren't guilty for what he did to your mother. Families are complicated. I get it. Your hands are clean in this particular instance. So I think that he's just trying to critique the left so it looks as if he's playing both sides because he really has made a name for himself in Republican circles. So perhaps he wants to keep that grift going. Either way, I've got to say, I do feel bad for Christian Walker in this instance. You can actually hear the pain in his voice. And this isn't an act. This is somebody who just can't take the lies that have affected his family, I'm assuming, in a really negative way. And I've got to say, this leads me to kind of believe that perhaps I misjudged Christian Walker because I always viewed him, largely due to his online persona, as this privileged, spoiled brat who thought he was better than everyone else. And, you know, this is kind of in part due to the way that I was raised, right? I had a pretty stable childhood with the exception of living in really bad poverty. Um, so that kind of colored my perspective of life to where if you're deprived of material well-being, you know, that's the worst. But even if you have, you know, wealth, even if you come from a family where you're taken care of, at least when it comes to money, you still can have a really bad life. And with Christian Walker, he just really didn't talk about all of this. So it lets it lets us get a glimpse 
into who Christian Walker really is. He's dropping the facade. He's leaving behind this persona to just be real and authentic. And it works for him. He should do this more often. He should be upfront with us more often because it really helps us to understand who he is. And as I said, I feel sympathy for him in this instance because you can tell he's actually hurting. Now, I'd be remiss to not point out a really poorly aged tweet by right-wing provocateur Glenn Greenwald shared by David Dole on Twitter where he wrote, Christian Walker is very smart and independent-minded and is going to be driving liberals absolutely crazy for a very long time to come. Oh, that tweet aged so poorly. And now Christian Walker is presumably driving Republicans nuts because love him or hate him, Christian Walker is attacking the GOP's one shot at taking back this seat in Georgia. And they don't care who it is. They don't care if it's a hypocrite who's a liar and a domestic abuser. They don't care. They just want a Republican in that seat who's going to vote with Republicans. So if they have to vote in the literal reincarnation of Satan, they don't care. All they care about is the politics of this situation. So they're not going to take into account what Christian Walker is saying. GOP operatives are going to do what they can to push Herschel Walker through. And what they're already trying to do is use the Trump playbook, where you kind of just muscle through all of these allegations, you ignore them, you brush them aside, and you keep on going. That's been successful for Trump. Will it be successful for Herschel Walker? I mean, we'll have to wait and find out. But just stop for a moment. We just heard a ton of bombshell allegations about Herschel Walker. And just consider this. He could still win. This man can still become a U.S. senator despite all of the things that we know about him, despite knowing about his past, despite knowing about his present and how he is unqualified to be a candidate because he very clearly mentally does not have the capacity to serve and have this much power. But yet here we are. He still could win. He's in a neck and neck race with Raphael Warnock. So either way, this is a bad look for his campaign. And whether or not this hurts him, obviously, I hope that it hurts his campaign. But I do feel a lot of sympathy for Herschel Walker's children and Christian Walker specifically, because he's giving us a side of him that we didn't see before. And, you know, to have a parent like this who's worshipped by everyone, but deep down, you know, his dark past and you've got to kind of fake it to make it publicly. I feel like that's really sad. And it tells us a lot about Christian Walker and why he's so angry all the time and why he condemns his own community. He's just lashing out at everyone. So, you know, you kind of see him in a different light because of this. But either way, I respect him for what he did. Speaking out publicly against a family member at a crucial time, that's no easy task. It takes a lot of courage that I don't think others would have. So love him or hate him. I have my feelings about Christian Walker, but in this instance, he absolutely, I think, deserves our respect for this move because there's no way what he did was easy and you know it's something that took a lot of guts to do so i respect him for it so yeah we'll leave that there most of us already knew that dr oz was a quack doctor and a con man and a fraud but now we're learning how much of a sick sadistic torturer and murderer of innocent animals he is as well which leads me to believe that he may actually be a sociopath. So Jezebel broke the story about how he and his authority at Columbia University tortured animals. And we're talking about hundreds of animals, including puppies even. 
Like, this is movie villain stuff here. So Kylie Chung explains, Oz, the New Jersey resident who's currently running for U.S. Senate from Pennsylvania, was a principal investigator at the Columbia University Institute of Comparative Medicine Labs for years and assumed full scientific, administrative, and fiscal responsibility for the conduct of his studies. Over the course of 75 studies published in academic journals reviewed by Jezebel, Oz's team conducted experiments on at least 1,027 live animal subjects that included dogs, pigs, calves, rabbits, and small rodents. 34 of these experiments resulted in the deaths of at least 329 dogs, while two of his experiments killed 31 pigs and 38 experiments killed 661 rabbits and rodents. In the early 2000s, testimony from a whistleblower and veterinarian named Catherine Del Orto about Oz's research detailed extensive suffering inflicted on his team's canine test subjects, including multiple violations of the Animal Welfare Act, which sets minimum standards of care for dogs, cats, primates, rabbits, and other animals in the possession of animal dealers and laboratories. The law specifically requires researchers and breeders to use pain-relieving drugs or euthanasia on the animals and not use paralytics without anesthesia or experiment multiple times on the same animal. Del Orto testified that a dog experimented on by Oz's team experienced lethargy, vomiting, paralysis, and kidney failure, but wasn't euthanized for a full two days. Now, we're going to stop there. I will link you to this article if you want to get into the specific details, but they are very, very gruesome, so be warned. Now, these experiments took place between 1989 and 2010, and just to kind of explain to you how bad they were without getting into the specifics, there are laws that essentially govern the way that scientists are able to conduct experiments on live animals, and he broke those laws as well not sedating animals before injecting them with medicine that caused pain and discomfort, leaving them there for a long time to suffer, disposing of dead animal bodies by throwing them in the garbage. Genuinely horrifying stuff here. And do you know how in like those movies, serial killer movies, where at a young age the serial killer starts killing and torturing animals and that's like the one sign that something's up with them and they may be a serial killer one day. This is what I envision with Dr. Oz. Like that's the image that came to my mind when I read this story. This is sociopath stuff here. To torture these animals and ignore the law, to violate the Animal Welfare Act and have no regard for their pain and suffering. I mean, that is genuinely disturbing to hear. To do these experiments on animals and follow proper protocols you should still feel a little bit of pain, even if you believe you're doing that for the greater good. Like, you should not feel ethically comfortable with that, right? It should make all normal people a little bit uneasy. But he didn't even follow those laws. He just straight up did what he needed to do or felt that he needed to do while not sedating them, not euthanizing them, letting animals suffer. It's just genuinely disturbing. And the USDA ordered Columbia University to pay $2,000 in fines. And months after they paid these fines, they defended Oz. So not only did they just get a slap on the wrist for torturing hundreds of animals, but they defended Oz and paid the fine happily. So it's genuinely sociopathic and... If you already didn't trust Dr. Oz, this should maximize your distrust in him. Because for someone to do that and not feel any guilt, seemingly, 
it's genuinely twisted. It's genuinely disturbing. Only a sociopath can torture animals and not feel anything about it. Just keep doing it. It's sick. Really sick shit. Now, this isn't the only revelation to impact Dr. Oz's campaign, but because he's been, you know, in hot water as of late, as Matthew Gertz of Mediaite illustrates, Fox News has now gone all in in attacking his opponent, John Fetterman, mentioning John Fetterman 120 times, which is six times more than other Senate Democratic candidates. And recently, Cook Political Report has shifted the race back to a toss-up after saying it leans Democrat. Now, this comes after Fetterman's polling averages have decreased, even though Fetterman still does hold a four-point lead, but they've decreased overall. But because John Fetterman is presumably viewed by Republicans as the biggest threat to Republicans taking back control of the Senate, well, they've dedicated all of their uh, shots at John Fetterman, and it seems like the attacks, the smears are working despite republicans not really trusting dr oz that was a really brutal primary and you had even his old opponent kathy barnes saying no i'm not endorsing him and yet fox news right-wing propaganda they're there to clean up the mess that dr oz made during the primary it just goes to show you how powerful right-wing propaganda is they can get people to believe some deranged things when people like dr oz they've proven that they are frauds, they are phonies. This is the Republican equivalent of Hillary Clinton, and yet Fox News was able to rehabilitate him and, and in essence, save his dying campaign. Now, that's not to say that it's a foregone conclusion that Oz is going to come up and defeat Fetterman. Fetterman is still in the lead, but would I be surprised if Oz did actually pull out a dub? No, I wouldn't, because again, right-wing propaganda is absolutely powerful and they have the capacity to essentially brainwash their viewers. Now, I wanna share an ad put out by Fetterman that demonstrates how big of a fraud Oz was. This was really clever. Let's watch. Hi, everybody. Hey, everybody. With my diet, you can eat all you want, anytime you want. And you'll lose weight? Uh, you might. It's a free country. I've got the number one miracle in a bottle to burn your fat. Lose fat without diet or exercise. Stubborn stomach fat instantly disappears. I recommend a slow, steady gorging process combined with acyl horizontology. Garcinia Cambogia extract. Crystal sonic therapy. C. Buckthorn. Dr. Nick, this malpractice committee has received a few complaints against you. Dr. Oz being sued for advice he gave to viewers who struggle falling asleep. Dr. Oz is being accused of promoting quack treatments by some top physicians. Are you looking for a way to slash the cost of your medical expenses? How much would you pay for a pill that takes your body back 10 years? Call 1-600-DOCTORB. The B is for bargain. His empire and wealth have flourished. The most rewarding part was when he gave me my money. Bye-bye, everybody! That was just incredible. That was absolutely incredible. But I do hope that John Fetterman focuses on this new story as well, because this is this is really something else. Right. So now Pennsylvania voters know that Dr. Oz is not just a quack and a scam artist, but they know that he is a torturer of puppies. Literally, again, like this is movie villain shit that we're talking about here. So if they vote for him, despite knowing all of this, 
you have to blame them. You can't always chalk up these Republican victories to voters just being uninformed. Sometimes we have to place blame on voters. And whenever you think it's a cut and dry race where there's clearly a bad candidate versus a good candidate, who cares? Never underestimate the stupidity of American voters. That's not to say that I blame voters in every instance, but I think that American voters, they're so hyper-polarized, they're so partisan, they're so within their own echo chambers that just hearing what right-wing media tells them, that's sufficient to get them to completely change their mind on a candidate. It's not just this race, right? Herschel Walker, after it was revealed that this supposedly pro-life candidate paid for the abortion of his girlfriend, got exposed by his own son as a liar, he saw a huge surge in donations after these allegations came to light. Why? Because Republicans apparently like these scandals. They only lean into them because, oh, well, these candidates are flawed, so maybe I should support them because they're flawed just like me. I don't know. Maybe being a shitty person personalizes Republicans. I don't know what makes the average Republican voter tick, but... This is why our system is so messed up because Republican voters, they have no standards. They, they will vote for any con man and not think twice about it so long as they could trigger their libs and keep the Democrat out of office. It's just genuinely disturbing. But again, we'll have to wait and see. It's not a foregone conclusion yet. I genuinely hope that Dr. Oz loses, but who knows what's gonna happen at this point. Well, it looks like the stock trading ban for members of Congress has failed and it will be postponed until after the midterm elections. So what happened? They had a really good bipartisan piece of legislation co-authored by Pramila Jayapal and Republican Matt Rosendale. And the Senate even had a companion piece to that House legislation co-authored by Elizabeth Warren and Republican Steve Daines. So it seemed like even if this wasn't necessarily everything that progressives wanted it to be, it was sufficient to ban members of Congress from trading stocks. Now, there were some loopholes. It was imperfect legislation, but it was a step in the right direction, but it failed. And Pramila Jayapal is blaming Democratic Party leadership. Now, is she speaking out against them in a very tepid manner? Yes, but is she placing blame on them nonetheless? Absolutely, and this is important. The Hill writes, Jayapal said there's been a lot of disappointment that the proposal crafted by the House Administration Committee at the request of Speaker Nancy Pelosi was written behind closed doors and arrived just days before the House was to leave Washington last week for the long midterm recess. Some supporters of the ban have suggested the process was designed to ensure that no vote could happen in September. Quote, we weren't really brought into the process. We didn't really know what was happening with the bill. And at the end of the day, there were things that perhaps we could have headed off at the pass or fixed, Jayapal said on a press call. The way in which it was released and the timing of it and the fact that it never even got to come to a vote and the fact that some members, even of leadership, were not supportive of it was very difficult for us, she added. So what she's trying to say without saying what she thinks explicitly is that leadership sabotaged this bill. And centrists and Republicans have also condemned leadership. In fact, to her credit, Abigail Spanberger, who I'm no fan of, actually more harshly criticized leadership because of their role in sabotaging this legislation. So for Pramila Jayapal to speak up as the co-author of this legislation, I think that that is important. But let me remind you what other Democrats and Republicans said. This was published on September 30th in The Intercept, and they detail how members of Congress think 
Leadership actually deliberately sabotaged this legislation. Austin Allman explains, after House leaders introduced a bill to curtail stock trading by federal officials on Tuesday, Democrats and Republicans pointed out the discrepancies between the leadership-approved version and the carefully negotiated bipartisan bills that predated it. Those discrepancies led to several members saying they could not vote on the measure without reviewing the text and determining whether the bill could draw enough votes in both chambers to become law. When backlash to the leadership version of the bill emerged, leaders pulled it from the schedule. It wasn't a real process, one Democratic staffer told The Intercept. There were all these things thrown in there that on the surface look good, but make it so expansive that, you know, it's not going to make it to the president's desk. Now, that's not the only Democratic staffer to go on record and say that this wasn't a real process. The huge sign here that this wasn't a real process is that the Rosendale-Jayapal bill wasn't even considered in the process. So behind closed doors, leadership crafted this bill and it wasn't what they had already negotiated in Congress, the bipartisan piece of legislation that both the House and the Senate seemingly agreed to. And according to Rosendale, his office believed that that bill could have actually had the votes to pass. So what did leadership do? Well, they changed elements of the bill. They improved it in some respects, and then they weakened it in other respects. So what would be the point of doing this? Well, they're trying to undercut that bipartisan harmony that we see, because think about this. If progressives support the improvements, but reject the weaker elements, while Republicans reject the improvements, but embrace the weaker elements, well, this is going to break up the bipartisan harmony. They already agreed on the specifics, so why would you introduce all of these new elements if you're trying to quickly pass something before the midterms? Well, you don't want to pass it, hence why you introduce these elements. Now, some of them have already told us where they stand. Steny Hoyer, for example, came out against the ban on stock trading. Surprise, surprise. And Pelosi, she opposed it until she was forced to publicly support it. But using her power as a leader, she was able to publicly look as if she supports it while covertly sabotaging this by not producing a piece of legislation using the framework Republicans and Democrats had already agreed to. So the question is, why would leadership sabotage this? I mean, we shouldn't have to ask this question. It's rhetorical, but it's pretty obvious, right? We have to say it. It's because they are corrupt. They don't want to stop trading stocks because they're getting very wealthy because of this. Nancy Pelosi has a net worth of more than $100 million, and it is very obvious that she is engaging in insider trading, using her husband with the insider knowledge that she has as the Speaker of the House, as a member of Congress who gets access to information that everyone else isn't privy to, she then relays that information to her husband, and then he purchases stocks that make them rich. And they're not the only ones who do this, who engage in insider trading, but they currently control the levers of power, so they are able to sabotage it. So that's what happened. Something that could have actually passed was sabotaged by Democratic Party leadership because they knew that if they went with the original bipartisan framework, it would fail. And what's bizarre to me is that usually when we see massive bipartisan support for any piece of legislation, it's usually negative. It usually, you know, deleteriously impacts the American people. But in this instance, this was actually good. There were some loopholes. Again, it wasn't perfect, but it could have passed. But leadership just didn't want to put it up for a vote because they know it would pass. So what do they do? They present this shell of legislation that was already agreed upon, knowing 
it will fail. And since Nancy Pelosi won't put bills up to a vote unless they have the votes to pass, they just pulled it. They know what they did. This is corruption, and this is completely unacceptable, but it's predictable for members of the Democratic Party leadership who are completely invested in enriching themselves. This is what Nancy Pelosi does. This is what Steny Hoyer does, and it's absolutely shameful and disgraceful. When you have Democrats and Republicans agreeing on something like this that would curtail corruption, to have Democratic Party leadership sabotage it is just beyond the pale. So needless to say, there needs to be new leadership in the Democratic Party or real fundamental changes will never actually happen. You'd think that yesterday was not a very fun day for Herschel Walker and his campaign team. So he went on Fox News the day after he was interviewed by Brian Kilmeade. This was today. And he's going to be asked about the allegations brought forward by his son, who essentially is calling Herschel Walker a liar, claims that he's an individual who has lived his life destroying other lives, he's not raising his children, and he's just overall a liar. He's a phony. This whole, I'm a moral Christian facade is just that. It's not actually real. So, Brian Kilmeade is going to ask Herschel Walker to respond to Christian Walker's video specifically. And as you're going to see, Herschel Walker does not want to address the substance here. Take a look. Uh, here's what your son surprised a lot of us uh, because he's been he's had tweeted uh, positive things for you. He's an influencer, a conservative. Uh, and this is what he came out and said after this revelation and your appearance with Sean. Listen. My intention is don't lie about your life at the expense of me, my mom, and all of the people that you've affected throughout your life. You don't get to pretend you're some moral family guy. You don't get to pretend all these things. Talk policy, talk normal, do not lie. So he saw that and says, you're lying, Herschel. What do you say about your son? Is he telling the truth? Well, I love my son unconditionally, and I, that's where I've always been. I always love him unconditionally. You know, he graduated college uh, a couple of months ago. He's now a young man doing his own thing, but his father is always there for him. I always will be for any, any of my kids, and I love him. I always support him, and I always have supported him, and I always will, and I love him unconditionally. But he's doing uh, tremendous damage to you by coming out with those statements. Do you know why he's saying this? Well, the damage he's doing, he's letting people know that the left will do whatever they can to win the seat. And I told you when I got in this race, I'm going to win this seat. People see someone sitting here in front of you right now that's been redeemed. And I want America to know I'm living proof that you can make mistakes and get up and keep going forward. But you can only do it in this country right here. And you can only do it if we get this election correct this come November, because we vote for the people on the left, like the guy running against Senator Warnock, you're not going to have a chance to be redeemed. He's a minister, and he's don't believe, he don't believe in redemption. Right now, they're trying to destroy right. America. They're trying to destroy Georgia, and I'm not going to let them happen. It ain't going to happen on my watch. And he went on to tweet, he said, I stayed silent as the atrocities committed against my mom was downplayed. I stayed out that my father, Herschel Walker, had all these random kids across the country, none of whom he raised. What do you say to that? Well, what I say to that is just what I said. I love him unconditionally. I wrote about everything in my book. People can read the book. I wrote about it. I bared my whole soul out in the book. I was forgiven. The Lord has forgiven me. Like I said, I'm a Christian. I will always be a Christian. That's the reason I got into this race, because I see things that are going wrong that's not right in this country. They're trying to separate us. They're trying to divide us. 
Well, I want to bring people together. That's the way I've always been. I don't care who you are and whether you have fallen down, I'm telling you can get up. I'm telling you that you can have success if you're willing to admit your problem right. and get up and keep going forward. But they want to they want to take this seat away. They need this seat here in Georgia. And I'm telling everyone out there, and I, I'm not trying to promote anything here. You got to go to teamherschel.com. Let's keep this seat. Right. I can promise you I'm going to win this seat. So, Herschel, you're saying that you weren't the perfect dad or the perfect spouse, but you've been redeemed. Is that what you're saying? Oh, that's exactly what I'm saying. I, no one is perfect. You know, I even said at a, at a meeting, I'm a sinner. We all sin before the glory of God. But every day I get up in the morning, I pray to God that let me do his will. And that's the reason I'm in this race right now. When I see people getting hurt on the street, the crime that's going on right now, the crime is going on because of Senator Warnock and Joe Biden. I see the crime going on. It seems like nobody want to hold anyone accountable for. I said, not on my watch. I see the way this economy is. And they saying, we're not in. It's, it's OK. Well, it's not. This is a this is a new normal. Well, it's not. And I want people out there to know it's not a new normal. And if I told them if I had to fight alone, I'm willing to fight. I love America. I will fight for America. I'll fight for Georgia. And that's the reason I got into this race. Okay, so my thoughts immediately are twofold. First and foremost, he was definitely coached and his team made sure that he had memorized what they wanted him to say, how they wanted him to respond to these questions that they knew he would be asked. Second of all, um, he was still very insufferable because as you saw, we didn't really get a straight answer. Now, the first thing that I want to point out is you might think that this is actual journalism from Fox News because Brian Kilmeade was asking tough questions, but simultaneously they were priming the audience to think of Herschel Walker in a more positive light. Look at the loop that they played at the beginning where Christian Walker was hugging Herschel Walker. They looped that like three different times. This was deliberate. They were trying to get you to think subconsciously that Herschel Walker is a loving father because here he is with his son. Seems like the love is mutual there. So they're trying to get you at least at the beginning to side with Herschel Walker as he answers these questions. Now, to say that he answered these questions would be a misstatement because he didn't answer any question. So Brian Kilmeade asked him four different times about Christian Walker's video, about his tweets, and he did not answer. So the first time, he responded by saying, I love my son. The second time he responded by saying, um, so remember, Kilmeade asked, he's damaging your campaign. Herschel Walker said, well, the damage he's doing is letting the left know they'll do anything they can to win this seat. Just pause for a moment and marinate on that statement there. The damage that my son is doing to my campaign is letting the left know that they'll do anything that they can to win this seat. You're not even pretending to answer the question you're just it's like if you ask me hey mike what do you want to eat well what i want to eat is you know a good life where i'm able to work a job with a living way it, you're just you're you're answering your own question right <laughs> you're not even trying uh third time he uh is not going to answer instead he's going to plug his bo his book i wrote about everything in my book absolutely shameless and in the final time he was asked brian kilmeade framed it in a more charitable way to Herschel Walker, less aggressive. Not necessarily a good question because this is what we call leading the witness here. But he claimed that, you know, he's been redeemed. And he's admitting that, sure, he had some bad moments in his past, but he's moved on from that. Jesus has forgiven him. The problem with that is it's believable only insofar as we don't know about these other allegations that you've denied. The abortion story dropped this week 
and you're claiming that you did not pay for your ex-girlfriend's abortion. So did you or did you not do it? Because if you admitted that you did indeed do that, but you think that that was wrong, then that's a different story. If you're actually agreeing with Christian Walker that you've ruined the lives of your children and your exes, then, okay, maybe this whole redemption arc is more believable. But you're not doing that. So, to say, oh, well, I've been forgiven when you're still not confessing to the things that you're being accused of here, that's the problem. So, the question is, do Christians see through Herschel Walker? And the answer is, uh, no, if anything, this is going to help him. I kid you not. So, on the day when the Daily Beast broke the abortion story. As Mediaite reports, Herschel Walker had a record-breaking fundraising day. I kid you not. As David Drucker of DC Examiner explains, Walker raised $182,000, including $50,000 during his Sean Hannity interview on Fox News. So if we lived in a reasonable world, in a reasonable country with reasonable and logical people, you would think that after seeing how Herschel Walker is lying about his pro-life stance, he's a hypocrite, they might think, mm, maybe I don't want to support him because he's a baby killer. They believe that abortion is murder, so why would they support someone who committed an act of murder? He paid for this murder, according to them. Isn't he a co-conspirator here? Directly involved. But no, they flock to him and they think, nope, I've just got to support him even more. Now, let's be a little bit more charitable to them for a second. What if they just saw the abortion story, they didn't believe it, but yet they didn't hear about Christian Walker's claims? Well, they still don't believe Christian Walker and they're still siding with Herschel Walker, evidenced by this photo of pro-lifers praying with Herschel Walker this morning at First Baptist Church in Atlanta. They were asking God to give Herschel his armor to shield him from his own son's truth bombs. And that kind of tells you everything that you need to know. Herschel Walker can do anything and they either won't believe it or they'll brush it aside claiming, well, you know, he's changed. This is absolutely um, predictable for Christians in the United States of America, and it's culty. And if you don't think that that photo was culty enough, let's watch the video of it. Amen. This is the fight of his life, holy yes, God. Yes. Amen. And we call forth your ministering angels yes, to be yes, his yes, defenders. Yes. And we ask you to rebuke the devil. Amen. 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 Satan will not get the victory. And we know. Whatever the results of this election, Herschel wins. Because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so we thank you that we can support our fellow conqueror, our brother, our friend, the one that we are praying for today. We lift up his wife, Julie. And we pray for your protection. We know that her heart is sensitive to all of these attacks. Yeah. And all of the things the enemy will dredge up and throw against them. We commit them to your safekeeping. And even today, when the media has been circling this property, trying to sneak into this event, just to feed the tabloids and the headlines, dear God, we rise above the sludge. Yes, yes, Jesus. We our feet on solid ground. That's right. We are standing on holy ground. Yes. You are our defender. Listen, I need Christians to understand that this is not 
normal behavior. This is mental illness. And rather than feeding into your delusions of grandeur, you need to seek help. I get it. I was raised in the church, but at some point I grew up. And as I matured, my beliefs did too. I stopped believing in Santa Claus. I stopped believing in the tooth fairy. And logically, I also stopped believing in God because magic is not real. I live in the real world and all of these folks need to live in the real world too. But they're all in unison praying to the sky and they're doing so at the behest of this terrible person who they want to win an election as if god was real and he created the universe he'd give a single fuck about this senate race in georgia wouldn't he be caring about a genocide that's going on on some alien planet in a distant galaxy why would he care about herschel walker's senate race why would he side with republicans just think it through a little bit. So this is this is not normal. I just need you to be clear. You can pray to yourself and that's still bizarre, but this is even more bizarre. It's like bizarreness, odd behavior magnified on a mass scale. And just because a lot of people do this doesn't mean that it's any less culty. Just because it's common doesn't mean it's not culty. This is by definition cult behavior. And it really explains why they will never abandon Republicans like Herschel Walker, even if they know that he's a hypocrite on issues like abortion. It's because they're all intertwined in this little cult. And if you're in that in-group, if you're a cult member, then you can do no wrong by definition. And when it comes to Christian Walker and how Herschel Walker's supporters are responding to that, well, as Patriot Takes shared, at least this Herschel Walker supporter is calling Christian Walker part of the fake news media. Christian Walker is his son. Christian Walker is a Republican. Why on earth would he all of a sudden choose to become fake news media? Do you think that he was bribed by the left? I mean, he's already pretty wealthy to my understanding, right? He wears designer clothing. He grew up with a lot of money because of who his dad is. What amount of money would get Christian Walker to lie on his father's name and essentially like blow up his own grift? Like this is a right wing grifter. Why would he flip on a dime like that? Because you got a paycheck from, I don't know, George Soros or whoever they want to speculate paid him off. This is like just one anecdote, but I think that it speaks to a broader issue with Republicans. They are immune to the truth. They have this bubble and they won't let facts and logic and data and even reason penetrate that bubble. Now, again, I talked about this yesterday. The bad news about this story is that as absurd as the situation is, as bad of a candidate as Herschel Walker is, he can still win. Although the good news, according to Real Clear Politics, is that Raphael Warnock is still leading by an average of 3.8 percentage points. But it'd be unwise to count Herschel Walker out just yet because Cook still does classify this race as a toss-up, and I think for good reason. So we don't know what's going to happen. Herschel Walker can still win, and it's not going to be in spite of the hypocrisy. It's not going to be Christians coming out to support him, you know, despite his flaws. It's going to be because of his flaws. They don't necessarily view this in the way that you and I view this. They view this as an attack. This is spiritual warfare. They think that these are lies being lobbed at Herschel Walker, and his son is part of the smear attempt, even though that's his own flesh and blood, and he has everything to lose and nothing to gain by speaking out and condemning his own father. But because of these types of stories, it's not going to make Christians and Republicans distance themselves from these flawed candidates. 
the opposite happens every single time. This is the world that we're living in now. This kind of started to happen with Donald Trump, where the Access Hollywood tape came out. And you think at that point that evangelicals would be turned off by this presidential candidate saying grab women by the P word. P word. I sound like Ben Shapiro, by the way, but, you know, trying not to curse on the channel. Um, and no, that wasn't the end of it. So this is the world that we live in where people who claim to be moral authorities, who judge everyone else, who want to take away civil rights from other people, will absolutely never, ever be introspective and never judge their own as harshly as they judge others. This is the reality that we live in now, unfortunately, where a lot of people don't live in reality and they're delusional and they are in cults, but this is what we have to work with. How do we bring these people back to reality? I have no idea, but the first step to finding a solution is acknowledging that a problem exists. And this right here, this cult-like behavior that we're seeing with the GOP is absolutely a problem. A Keating research poll conducted in Colorado's 3rd Congressional District between September 29th and October 2nd finds that Lauren Boebert is in danger of losing her re-election bid. Yeah. So Axios explains Bobo received support from 47% of likely voters, while Democrat Adam Frisch landed at 45%, making the race a statistical tie within the 4.4 percentage point margin of error. 7% of voters are undecided per the poll. Unaffiliated voters, those not aligned with the major political party, strongly dislike Bobo, who's known for her Christian nationalist rhetoric, opposition to bipartisan legislation, and lightning rod remarks about guns and immigration. Those voters are shifting towards Frisch as the election progresses, Polster said. Quote, with Boebert under 50%, that means she is vulnerable to losing this race, Chris Keating, president and founder of Keating Research, told Axios Denver on Tuesday. Now, let's pause for a moment and try to contemplate what this would mean if Lauren Boebert actually lost her re-election bid. This means that the GOP would be forced to grapple with whether or not their party's far-right extremism is hurting them electorally speaking. It would be a political earthquake. To not have this extremist in Congress would be good. It'd send a message to individuals like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others that they're not invulnerable and the impossible could happen. But, not to rain on everyone's parade, I don't necessarily think that this is going to happen, unfortunately. Keating is a Democratic pollster, although they are viewed as relatively reputable. The problem is that even though there's a chance, even though this poll is a good sign, even though it's possible that Frisch defeats Bobo, it's very, very unlikely, unfortunately. And let me tell you why. First and foremost, Colorado's third district heavily favors Republicans usually. And I don't think that Bobo is as much of a deviation from the norm, considering how insane and extremist other Republicans are. Sure, she's out there. Sure, she's worse. But is she bad enough to get them to either vote for a Democrat or not vote? I don't necessarily think so if history is a guide. Also, 538 gives Bobo a 98% chance of winning. So there is a chance to cite Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber. But it is a very small chance. Now, another thing working in her favor is money. According to Open Secrets, she's raised more than $5 million this cycle and has more than $2 million in her campaign coffers, whereas Adam Frisch, by comparison, has only raised $1.1 million. And I say only knowing that a million dollars is a huge amount, but compared to Lauren Boebert's $5 million, 
And politically speaking, this isn't necessarily that much considering he now only has under $600,000 in his campaign war chest. Also, most of his campaign is financed by himself and he has almost no grassroots support, which means that he's not doing enough to register new voters and create enthusiasm. And he's instead just relying on disaffected independence, which as we've learned throughout the years is not a very good strategy for Democrats. Now, Boebert is pulling in massive amounts of cash. The majority of her contributions come from wealthy campaign contributors who are maxing out their contributions. So in order to even have a chance of beating this machine, you've got to have a really robust, well-oiled, grassroots political machine. And Frisch just doesn't seem to be organizing to that extent, extent because again, he's kind of relying on independence. So politically speaking, he's running this standard run-of-the-mill milquetoast Democrat campaign, and he's not really taking a bold stance on any of these issues. He's just running as a Colorado first campaign, trying to be seemingly or at least aesthetically, you know, right wing enough to perhaps court some disaffected independents who just don't want to support Bovert. But I don't think this is going to work in the end. Now, again, that's not to say that he is doing that bad because he has made a huge swing and he's now statistically tied at least according to this poll but i actually think that this poll is an outlier and i don't necessarily think that this poll has anything to do with frisch i think it has everything to do with bobo but if he were to turn this around and perhaps use this poll to galvanize supporters to you know get the national democratic party invested in this race perhaps he could ride out that momentum and do even better but in terms of him actually defeating her it is very unlikely unless as i said he changes things and he uh he starts trying to appeal to a broader base he's really narrowly appealing to independence, but running a centrist campaign means that he's not going to be able to galvanize the left flank of the Democratic Party, nor will he be able to inspire younger voters and to defeat a Republican who can raise money this much in a very deep red district. You've got to bring out the broadest base of support. You've got to be constantly registering new voters. And he's kind of just coasting on momentum from self-funding his own campaign. So it honestly doesn't look good, in my opinion, despite this poll. Perhaps this trend will continue and he'll gain more ground on her. And the poll's good. Like, I don't want to rain on everyone's parade. This is a good sign, but it's still very unlikely that she loses this race. But we'll just have to wait and see. Would I like to be proven wrong? Absolutely. But the headlines on this particular one, it's accurate because they're statistically tied. At the same time, I'm not going to get my hopes up, and I recommend that you also don't get your hopes up. Heidi Gunal is the GOP's gubernatorial nominee in the state of Colorado, and much like her GOP peers, she's trying to gin up hysteria over what's happening in schools. But unlike her GOP peers, she's not necessarily hyper-focusing on CRT or LGBTQ plus books that she wants to ban. Rather, she's focusing on cats or should i say students that she is alleging are identifying as cats and to make matters worse schools 30 of which her campaign has identified are accommodating these cat identified students according 
to her. Now, it's not happening, obviously, but this is what she says. According to LGBTQ Nation, who reports in a radio interview last week, Ganal said that schools are tolerating students identifying as cats. She said in a recent debate with gay incumbent Governor Jared Polis that she had received over 100 messages from parents across Colorado mentioning the issue in their schools. Her campaign also released the list of 30 schools where such issues had allegedly occurred, though the list didn't detail specifics about the incidents themselves, the Denver Post reported. Quote, as a candidate for governor, but more than anything as a parent, my concern is that distractions like children dressing up in costumes at school detract from the reality that 60% of our kids are not performing at grade level, Ganal said. It's tragic that we are failing our children. We need to make them our priority. Now, it's ironic that she says that because rather than proposing solutions to improve the Colorado school system, rather than trying to allocate more resources to teachers so that way they're not having to use their own resources to purchase school supplies, she's simply just trying to gin up outrage about something that's not even happening in schools. Now, on September 6th, uh, 6th I actually posted a really lengthy video talking about a relatively similar myth to this. Now, to my knowledge, Ganal has not explicitly claimed that schools are going so far as to accommodate cat-identified students by placing litter boxes in restrooms. However, I do believe that what she's saying stems from that original conspiracy theory. Now, I'll link you to my full coverage of this down below, but if you don't want to watch that and you just want the TLDR version, this myth essentially originated from this December 2021 uh, video posted by Midland Public Schools. Yesterday, I heard something um, and I was stunned. And today I am equally stunned and a little bit upset. Well, not a little bit, a lot of bit upset, furious. I, don't, I would even use that word. But um, I want to talk to about the fact that, and I know this is going on nationwide, so it is not just for your, for this board, but our community needs to understand that the agenda that is being pushed through our schools is um, just my opinion but somewhat nefarious when it comes to some of the um, activities. So let's talk about fury, furries. <laughs> it was addressed by a child uh, a couple months ago that they are put in an environment where there are kids that, are, that identify as a furry, a cat or a dog, whatever. And so yesterday I heard that at least one of our schools in our town has a, in one of the unisex bathrooms a litter box for the kids that identify as cats. And um, I am really disturbed by that. And I, I will do some more investigation on that. I know it's going on nationwide. I know it is. It's part of the agenda that's being pushed. I don't, I don't even want to understand it. But I think that people need to be aware of it because I am really upset as a parent that my child is put in an environment like that. So because one concerned parent in Michigan claimed that she heard one school put litter boxes in the restrooms, well, that went viral. It blew up, libs of TikTok shared it, and then the conspiracy theories sort of died down within a couple of months after the schools came out and said, no, this is not happening. But the myth kept getting revived because presumably somebody saw that video again for the first time. They echo that same claim on social media. That claim then blows up and goes viral, and that's the new evidence that this is happening again. And this is how the myth keeps getting revived. Politicians are echoing the same claim and it just, it won't die. It's like a fucking cockroach. Now, I think that that 
is essentially where Ganala is getting this. And I don't doubt that parents are sending her concerns about students identifying as cats. I, I just think that it's stemming from this whole conspiracy theory. Now, this is not happening. It's not happening. And it doesn't seem like Ganal is curious enough to investigate herself. She's just taking these parents' word. And rather than contacting school officials, because this is a potential governor, she's just repeating what they're saying. It's ridiculous. And of course, schools, once again, have had to come out and state the obvious. No, there are not students who are identifying as cats, and we're not trying to accommodate said students who are identifying as cats. It's so preposterous. The Denver Post explains, officials for Denver Public Schools, Cherry Creek Schools, Aurora Public Schools, and Colorado Springs School District 11 all denied having any issues with students dressing up as cats or other animals. Two statewide organizations representing teachers and administrators criticized Ganal's claims and said they had never been made aware of such issues either. Randy Barber, a spokesman for Boulder Valley School District, which is included on a list Ganal's campaign provided of schools where students dress like animals, said he was unaware of any such issues. Quote, the concerns being generated by the Republican gubernatorial candidate are baseless, he said. The claims are exhausting for educators, said Brett Miles, the executive director of Colorado Association of School Executives. His group, along with the Colorado Education Association, described the claims as false. Both groups said no educator, administrator, or district had ever reported issues issues similar to Ganal's claims. Now, that same individual who was just quoted went on to make a really good point. He said, look, we are just trying our best to give students some semblance of normalcy after living through two years of a pandemic, which is still going on. But, you know, schools are back open and we're trying to make things the best that we can do, right? And we have to take time out of our day to investigate these claims and then report back to parents when they're false, they're bullshit. And yeah, so all of these conservatives who are complaining about the lack of in-person learning throughout the pandemic, now when school is back in session across the country, they're making matters worse by coming up with these bogus claims, by not even trying to investigate this themselves. I mean, if you're a parent and you hear this claim on social media, what's stopping you from calling the school? You are a parent. You can call the schools. You don't have to just echo the same thing that you hear on social media. Ask them. I'm sure that they'll talk to you. I'm sure the principal or whoever will say, okay, well, you know, I haven't seen this, but we'll look into it and we'll get back to you. They're willing to work with you, but they just don't want to do that. They just repeat what they hear. And it's like a game of conspiracy theory telephone. Now, some of the school districts who were involved, who were on that list that Ganal's campaign put out, they were trying to do their best. They said, look, okay, some students were wearing headbands with cat ears. But that's just like the style. They they sell headphones um, with cat ears. That doesn't mean that they're identifying as cats, nor does it mean that the school is going out of their way to provide litter boxes for students who wear headbands with cat ears. I mean, it's a it's a non-issue. It's it's a nothing burger. And another school district was like, well, I mean, we did have to ban students from wearing dog collars because that kind of became a thing. It was their style in the school. But I mean, the fact that they banned dog collars should prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're absolutely not trying to accommodate students who are identifying as cats and dogs. Look, in my, ma my main video where I, I talked about this, go watch it. I explain how this is all hysteria primarily over trans issues, right? Because the whole 
joke on the right with comedians and whatnot is that if I can be a girl if I was born a boy, then I can identify as anything, including an Apache attack helicopter. So what's stopping students from identifying as non-human species? And it's just not true. By trying to pretend as if students are identifying as cats, well, this further legitimizes this hysteria over trans issues because, well, you know, maybe your kid isn't trans, but maybe they're a trans species and they're identifying as cats. And ignorant conservatives take that as evidence that we should hide away trans people because they're influencing our children to become cats when it's just not happening. So once again, this story has popped up. It had to be debunked, and I'm sure within a couple of months, once again, we'll, we'll hear from a Republican who says, I heard that there's litter boxes in restrooms at one school. Like, it's not going to die. It's not going to go away. It's going to keep happening, and schools are going to have to continue to respond to this bird brain claim that cats in schools, or that students in schools are identifying as cats. On its face, these parents should be smart enough have at least enough common sense to assume seems a little bit implausible but if i care enough i'll look into it but that's not happening and so they're contacting republicans and these are becoming political stories it's got to stop but it won't because unfortunately this shit works for republicans so uh we'll see if it works for ganal here You just watched Amazon workers at their JFK 8 warehouse in Staten Island all gather into the break room and collectively demand that they close down the facility for the evening following a fire that broke out at that particular warehouse. Now, coincidentally, this is the same warehouse that earlier this year successfully voted to form a union. That detail is indeed going to be relevant here in a moment. But for more details about the fire, we go to Kenny Stansel of Common Dreams, who explains roughly 100 night shift workers at the Staten Island facility participated in a work stoppage shortly after a fire broke out in a trash compactor machine used on cardboard, the Washington Post reported, citing officials from the Amazon Labor Union. Labor leaders said the warehouse smelled of smoke and that they couldn't breathe. One worker went to the hospital, they said. So for somebody to be sent to the hospital for multiple workers to say that they were having problems breathing, the situation is serious and they needed to shut down. But rather than just closing down the warehouse for one night, Amazon's management decided to threaten them with punishment if they did not get back to work. As Chris Smalls, the president of the Amazon Labor Union, explains via Twitter, I've been out here in the rain talking to upset workers instead of being sent home. Amazon management is threatening time deductions and written warnings for not returning back to the floor. The dock smells like burnt chemicals. Instead of shutting down, they hire a cleanup crew, shakes my head. So this is how brazen they are. They are so hellbent on making money that they are prioritizing that over the health and well-being of their warehouse workers, who they would not be successful without. And they did come through on their threats because they ended up suspending 50 workers who refused to go back to work. Now, suspiciously enough, 10 of those workers happened to be 
Amazon labor union leaders who did lead the demonstration. Now, some additional details here. ALU lawyer Seth Goldstein called the punishment of Staten Island employees a violation of workers' rights to join in a collective action about the terms and conditions of their employment. Quote, the workers didn't feel safe going back to work, said Goldstein. They were engaging in rights that have been protected for 85 years under the National Labor Relations Act. As The Post, which is owned by Amazon's mega-billionaire founder Jeff Bezos, reported, the mass suspension took place less than 10 days before warehouse workers at a separate Amazon warehouse near Albany, New York, are slated to vote to become the second Amazon workforce to join Amazon Labor Union. Now, that Albany warehouse that was cited, who will be voting to form a union in 10 days, is also going to be a factor in this particular story that sheds some light on Amazon's tactics here. Uh, but the Amazon Labor Union released a statement, and I want to get to that first. They explained how this is not the first time that their lives were placed at risk, and it's one of the many reasons why they voted to form a union in the first place, claiming that the company actually has a history of disregarding their health and safety concerns. And they also called on the company to stop stalling and start negotiating with the union. And they added that because Amazon has still not recognized the union that they voted to form. Yeah. Now, the Amazon Labor Union is stating that they will be filing a complaint over this violation here, uh, this abuse of workers by suspending them. And some additional details here about that particular warehouse. The Staten Island facility has earned a reputation for egregious violations of workers' rights since it opened in September of 2018. Data published earlier this year, for instance, shows that the fulfillment center's already above average injury rate increased by 15% from 2020 to 2021. So it's not like not letting workers go home after a fire broke out is some one-off incident. Workers have been complaining for years now about the way that the company just disregards their health concerns, and this has been an ongoing issue at this particular warehouse. Now, interestingly enough, a fire broke out at the Albany warehouse. Now, this happened a couple of days after the fire broke out at the Staten Island warehouse. Now, the response from Amazon management between these two warehouses is very, very suspicious in my opinion. As Amazon labor union attorney Seth Goldstein tweeted out, the Amazon warehouse in Albany closed the next day following a different warehouse fire, which prompted him to call for an OSHA investigation of all Amazon warehouses, rightfully so, because why do these fires keep happening? But an employee of JFK Aiden Staten Island responded saying, Amazon closes down Albany one after a fire as they should, but when workers at JFK JFKA protested the fact that our building didn't close down after a fire, they illegally mass suspend us. So you see two completely different responses from the same company. You'd think that a corporation as large as Amazon would have some protocols that they are requiring management to follow. But no, the company suspiciously that unionized, they got a much more harsher response. But the company who has not yet unionized and is set to vote on a union in 10 days, well, they were met with a reasonable response. Workers went home the next day because the warehouse closed down. So how does this look to you just at the top of your head? Does this not feel like retaliation from Amazon because the JFK 8 warehouse workers voted to form a union? So this is all just conjecture. I don't have evidence for this claim, but the optics here are very, very bad for Amazon. So to butter up perhaps the employees at Albany One, 
they close. They do the reasonable thing. They respect the workers' health, perhaps to suggest that maybe you don't need a union because we're looking out for your health and well-being. Whereas at JFK 8, they don't care. They just want to punish the workers who voted to form this union, which they still have not recognized. We can't prove this, but this is one of the many things that companies do to punish workers for unionizing. Amazon isn't alone here. We're seeing the way that Starbucks is trying to retaliate against stores that voted to form unions by creating benefits exclusively for employees that did not join these unions. So if there was some way that we can prove that Amazon specifically didn't close down this store and tried to make the workers uh, work despite the health ramifications as a form of retaliation, I would not be surprised. Now, again, we can't prove that, but it certainly looks really suspicious here. So either way, at any company, if the workers don't feel safe, if they can't breathe, if somebody actually goes to the hospital because the smoke is that strong, something needs to be done. This can't keep happening. Again, a 15% increase in injuries at that particular warehouse between 2020 and 2021. That is no small thing that is telling you that Amazon is not running this warehouse properly and action needs to be taken. So aside from the unions that need to be formed at all Amazon warehouses, action needs to be taken against this company by the government because they very clearly don't respect the health and safety of their workers. Well, folks, it seems as if we have a little bit of breaking news. President Joe Biden just made a huge announcement, and it's a positive one because we are taking drastic steps towards the legalization of cannabis. Now, we're not there yet, but what he did is undeniably good. Via the White House Twitter account, he writes, As I've said before, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. Today, I'm taking steps to end our failed approach. Allow me to lay them out. First, I'm pardoning all prior federal offenses of simple marijuana possession. There are thousands of people who were previously convicted of simple possession who may be denied employment, housing, or educational opportunities as a result. My pardon will remove this burden. Second, I'm calling on governors to pardon simple state marijuana possession offenses. Just as no one should be in a federal prison solely for possessing marijuana, no one should be in a local jail or state prison for that reason either. Third, we classify marijuana at the same level as heroin and more serious than fentanyl. It makes no sense. I'm asking Secretary Becerra and the Attorney General to initiate the process of reviewing how marijuana is scheduled under federal law. I'd also like to note that as federal and state regulations change, we need important limitations on trafficking, marketing, and underage sales of marijuana. Sending people to jail for possessing marijuana has upended too many lives for conduct that is legal in many states. That's before you address the clear racial disparities around prosecution and conviction. Today, we begin to right these wrongs. And I think that that's a great way to end this. We begin to right these wrongs. This is not the end-all be-all, but this is a really great step towards righting the wrongs of the United States' war on drugs and also Joe Biden righting the wrongs because as a senator, he did contribute to this with his crime bill. Now, there are other things that I wish he would have done. First of all, I wish that he would have called for marijuana to be removed entirely from the Controlled Substances Act. Second of all, I wish that he would have endorsed legislation in the Senate that would have done just that and would have brought him farther to these goals. So it's called the uh, Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act. Still, this is a really important step 
in the right direction. Now let's go to experts here, like Cassandra Frederic of the Drug Policy Alliance, because I think that her opinion here is really valuable. She said the advocacy group is thrilled to see President Biden holding true to his commitment to pardon every person with simple marijuana charges at the federal level, convictions that leave people saddled with a criminal record, preventing them from obtaining employment, housing, and countless other opportunities. We, however, hope that the Biden administration will go further and fully deschedule marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act rather than initiate a process that could lead to rescheduling, she continued. Keeping marijuana on the federal drug schedule will mean people will continue to face criminal charges for marijuana, Frederick argued. It also means that research will continue to be inhibited and state-level markets will be at odds with federal law. And that right there is really important because we're in this weird legal gray area where we could get a president with an attorney general that chooses to go after states with legal weed, and that would be really terrifying. Thankfully, we dodged a bullet back in 2017 when Trump became president and uh, Jeff Sessions was attorney general. He had a very harsh stance towards marijuana. So a lot of states that had legalized pot at that point were worried. We were bracing for impact, thinking that this would be the end. But thankfully, it wasn't the end. But to ensure that we are never in a situation where states are violating federal law, it needs to be legalized at the federal level. Now, we're not there yet. Biden is not calling for that yet, to be clear. But I think that momentum is very clearly rolling in that direction. So take a look at this map here. More than a dozen states have already legalized cannabis recreationally. This includes Washington, Oregon, California, Colorado, New York, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Alaska. I mean, the majority of the American population lives in a state with legal weed. So this is one of those situations where we're seeing a domino effect. We're seeing the popularity of legal cannabis for recreational purposes and you can't really unring that bell, right? You can't unopen Pandora's box. It's legal in many states, and they're not going to go back. And in the event we ever get a more reactionary president who's against legalization, or if they appoint an attorney general who wants to go after it, they're going to have a hell of a time. So the trajectory is very clearly headed in one direction, and that is full legalization in all 50 states. Joe Biden, he's not going to get us there. But he just put us one step closer to that goal, and I think that this is something to be celebrated. I'll also note the conspicuous timing just, you know, a month before the election. I really hate when politicians, you know, they time big announcements when it's politically optimal. Nonetheless, the fact that he's doing this in and of itself is good. Is it a little bit too late? Sure. Did I wish that he made this announcement in month one of his presidency so that way some of the things would have already taken effect? Yeah, of course. But the fact that he's doing this, it's good. It's smart politics to do it before an election. And it just shows you that there's one party, even if there's a lot of flaws with the Democratic Party, they are much different than the Republican Party. They just need to collectively as a party embrace the legalization of marijuana fully all of them need to get on board because this is popular americans want marijuana to be legalized a majority of the country wants recreational marijuana so if you get on the side of what's popular if you get on the right side of history you will be rewarded for it politically and this is just one step closer to what i think is uh absolutely long overdue so kudos to biden for doing this
So according to an analysis conducted by The Washington Post, they looked at Republicans running for public office across the country for various seats in various races. And what they found was absolutely disturbing. A majority of all Republicans running for office are election deniers, 299 to be exact. Now, this report coincides with the report that we talked about last month, released by 538, where they found that 60% of all Americans will see an election denier on their ballots this November. So we are entering uncharted territory here as a country. We are about to experience a huge wave of political instability and volatility over the course of the next decade or so because of all of these election deniers, many of which are going to win. Now, looking at that 299 again the majority of republicans running for office overall a majority of the majority of those election deniers are going to win yeah so 173 of the 299 are running in safe districts or running in safe races and they're going to win their elections now another 52 are running in tight races so there could be much more that are elected now the remaining 74 they are likely not going to win so we can disregard them but a disturbing fact is that in the house of representatives right now 139 incumbent republicans already are election deniers meaning they did not vote to certify the results of the 2020 election so we have 139 already and we'll get at least 37 new election deniers after november this is not going to go well for american democracy now in the short term this is going to produce a lot of political instability because many of these republican election deniers who lose especially in these tight races we know that a lot of them are going to cry fraud we've already seen this laura loomer for example lost her gop primary and she cried fraud Carrie Lake, she won her GOP primary, but when it was still, you know, you know, when the uh, vote was still coming in and it was really tight, she was crying fraud. So if we hear in mass dozens of Republicans across the country who lose their races cry fraud, imagine what that will do on the macro level. It will be very destabilizing. Now, Americans don't often listen to political scientists, but we need to because what they say is important. This is not a phenomenon that you see in healthy democracies. You only see this in authoritarian regimes or in newly democratized states. The Washington Post reports, scholars said the predominance of election deniers in the GOP bears alarming similarities to authoritarian movements in other countries, which often begin with efforts to delegitimize election results. Many of those promoting the stolen election narrative, they said, know that it is false and are using it to gain power. Election denialism is a form of corruption, said Ruth ben Gayet, the author of Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present, and a historian at New York University. The party has now institutionalized this form of lying, this form of rejection of results. So it's institutionalized illegal activity. These politicians are essentially conspiring to make party dogma the idea that it's possible to reject certified results. So that's what we're going to see in the short term. In 2022, it's going to be ugly, most likely. But imagine the 2024 election where we possibly see the presidential candidate for the GOP, assuming it's Trump, and dozens of House Republicans lose their races and cry fraud all in unison. We're looking at a situation potentially worse than January 6th. This can't 
continue. January 6th was just the tip of the iceberg, and things probably wouldn't get better quickly, even if all Republicans stopped denying the results of the election, even if they saw January 6th as the wake-up call, that their lies you know, went too far. Still, it would take time for democracy to heal and people to start to respect the process. But when we so still see them continue to delegitimize the process long-term, we're in for a really tough road ahead. The article continues, in the longer term, the country's democratic foundations are at risk. According to Larry Jacobs, this is a professor at political science at the University of Minnesota. Quote, it is a disease that is spreading through our political process and its implications are very profound, Jacobs said. This is no longer about Donald Trump. This is about the entire electoral system and what constitutes legitimate elections. All of that is now up in the air. And that's absolutely correct. Yes, Donald Trump has spawned dozens hundreds of copycats but now this is bigger than donald trump the disease has spread and our entire political system is infected these election denying republicans are about to take power in states across the country at the federal level and it's going to get ugly because they will be many of them will be in positions of power where they oversee elections or have some influence over the way that elections are conducted and this means that if we want to continue to be a democracy as flawed as our democracy is of course there are things that we have to do to improve our democracy but if we want to maintain what level of democracy that we already have we have to push back forcefully against these election deniers because this level of election denialism it just isn't conducive to a long-term democracy democracy is on its deathbed if this continues because it's only going to get worse this is a disease that is spreading exponentially and it has no sign of slowing down so people need to take this seriously i get that these are the stories you know about democracy and whatnot that are relatively boring but if you value what little democracy we have you will take this seriously and you will do what you can to convince your republican friends and family members to not participate in this. They can continue to be conservative Republicans, but if they vote for active election deniers, they're putting democracy for all of us at risk. And they need to know about this. They need to be aware of what they are doing to our entire system of governance. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.